You're listening to a Brain Stew Fresh Fright Review. What's up, creeps? And welcome to another Brain Stew Fresh Fright Review. I'm Justin. I'm Be Ready. Be Ready Tat. And we are on this episode talking about the latest from M. Night Shyamalan. Knock at the what? Is, what the fuck? This knock, knock at the door, knock right? Knocking on the cabin door. Hey, oh yeah, hey, that's. Hey, hey, hey. I keep wanting to call it knock at the door or knock at the cabin. It's just knock at the cabin. Knock at the cabin. Shouldn't yeah. it, shouldn't it have been knock at the cabin door? Wouldn't that have made more sense? Because they knock at the door in the movie. Yeah, but I mean, technically, the door is the cabin, so they're just knocking at the cabin. But I, I think the whole yeah, time I've been calling it knock at the cabin door because like it just sounds like that's what you would say. Like, yeah, it's the knock I mean, cabin if door. I was going to say he knocked on the house door, I wouldn't say he knocked on the house. Some, maybe some, I'm just some overthinking do, the maybe, entire maybe like a, thing. Maybe it's a regional thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, well, this what's whole the name of the book? About... <laughs> <laughs> what's, the, what's the name of the book that the, the film is based on? Uh, it's The Cabin at the End of the World by Paul Tremblay. Okay, that sounds way too, uh, I guess, uh, intellectual. It sounds way too smart to be a movie name. It sounds very literary, yeah. General audiences to go get excited to see it. But yes, we are talking about Knock at the Cabin, a movie that I don't think we really talked about on the show at all leading up we to did. the release. We did. Um, we, it was on my uh, list. N- okay. Not that much, I said. I gave no, it's a not very like heartfelt the 30 trailer. seconds. Probably one of the best 30-second performances of my life, which is you know saying what? a lot. <laughs> You're probably right. But ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't seen the movie... Spoilers. Yes, all, all the way through. And Brady has read the book as well, so I'm going to actually be asking him in some parts how it compares to the book because, of course, this is an adaptation and it kind of has to be discussed at all, you know, somewhat. And you just kind of have to. Um, but so you did have it on your list, so I would you just open it up with you. Like, so you had anticipation for this. Yeah, so, you know, Paul Tremblay is probably one of my favorite modern horror authors. He's got a handful of books out. Um, Head Full of Ghosts was like his big, um, I guess, like big hit. They got him launched into stardom and got a book deal. And then he came out with uh, The Cabin at the End of the World, followed by Survivor Song. And then just recently he had The Paul Bearers Club. Uh, all really good books, but Head Full of Ghosts is the one that I always had my eye on because Robert Downey Jr.'s production company picked it up right before COVID. And so they had like Margaret Qualley was um, attached to it. Uh, it was starting to get into pre-production and then COVID happened, shut it down. And then, uh, you know, back in the fall, Paul Tremblay came out with an announcement and was like, yeah, fucking M. Night is doing <laughs> an adaptation of my book. And I was like, holy fuck, like, it's got to be Head Full of Ghosts. And then it was Knock at the Cabin. And I was like, oh shit, it's Cabin at the End of the World. So, I don't know. I, I went into it knowing, as you do, with film adaptations that they're going to take some liberties, right? And it's, They're going to change Especially with it. M. Night Shyamalan, it's, it, he's going to do his thing. And I was expecting a twist. We'll get into that in the review. Um, but I just, I don't know. I, I kept a very open mind 
and there were things that I wanted to see stay intact with the story that did, and then there were things that fell apart that I was very upset with um, because I, I do think that it, it detracted from the overall like power of the story. Um, that being said, you want like my initial thoughts? Well, yeah, I mean, I was just going to kind of roll through a little bit with your anticipation. I was going to say before we get into that, for me at least, in terms of anticipation for this movie, there were... There was very little, if any. Um, I think the trailer itself intrigued me solely based on the fact that Dave Batista was in it. Dude. And I was like, yeah. oh, dude. I mean, you know, uh, I've loved everything he's been doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, even from small roles in Dune to Blade Runner 2049. I mean, he's really been showcasing his acting talents. And I mean, people are saying this, but I'm going to say it myself. He's by far the best wrestler turned actor there is. Oh, I for mean, sure. You know, his his work in the Guardians movies, his comedic timing. I mean, The Rock is a good action hero. Um, I've yet to see The Rock do any kind of dramatic role. Now, I'm waiting to see what Batista can do. But I was happy to see him in a role like this because it's different from what we're used to seeing him in. Um, but also with this movie, I didn't see old. I heard <laughs> way Ugh. too many things Ugh. about it from people that I trust. And nine times out of ten... I always give things an open opportunity for from my own viewpoint and want to watch something, mm-hmm. um, but the, it, I honestly just it 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 just kind of slipped through the cracks and you know I was like never mind I'll just wait. But the last movie I saw that was Shyamalan was Glass and I was so disappointed by it because I loved Split so much. I thought it was a great return to form. I thought it was a brilliant thriller. I was going to ask what was was that the last movie by Shyamalan that you liked was Split. Was split. Yeah. yeah, I just glass. I mean, because how, how this worked was at Alamo, we did like a triple feature advanced screening of glass. So we started with Unbreakable, which I hadn't seen in years and thought was absolutely brilliant. I mean, just watching it 20 years later, such a great film, one of his best. And then split, you know, second. And, and you know, I'd already seen it in the theaters twice and owned it by that point. Um, and then you get to glass. So watching them, you know, in conjunction with one another, one after the other, it really showed, you know, the drop in terms of quality, (laughs) character. You saw what he was trying to do with it, but he was just, you know, overstuffed and he didn't really know how to conclude anything. So I I skipped old, you know, um, but I've never been one to really hate his movies, but also on the same token, I haven't seen all of his movies. Excuse me. Um, Mm -hmm. But... Yeah, so this one, I, I kind of just jumped in and was like, listen, the premise looks cool enough. Home invasion yep. looks like it could be a little bit, you know, more violent than we're used to for, with his movies. Um, I'm not sure if I was right on that or not. But yeah, so I, w- I was open to it. I, I give everything an opportunity if I have the time. So yep. yeah, man, we might as well jump right in with your initial thoughts. So um, like we said, Spoiler heavy episode here. Spoilers. Um, you know, I I thought Batista as Leonard was great. I think he's menacing. I think he's commanding. I think he can he eats up every bit of screen time that he has. And I think I wasn't sure what to expect. Like you said, like we've been watching him. We've we've seen him do some really good things with Guardians of the Galaxy, with Dune, with Blade Runner twenty forty nine. But in this role, I mean, he's very soft spoken. Right, but it's just his delivery of everything. So he's really showing his dramatic uh, chops here. Um, the rest of the supporting cast of the 
group or the four horsemen of the apocalypse, what you will, couldn't give a flying fuck about the rest of them. Like Rupert Grant with whatever <laughs> fucking accent that was. Like what the fuck was that? He was like, what and then was he was he like, trying I'm from to Medford, do? Massachusetts. I was like, I live up here. You do not sound like that in Medford, Massachusetts. And then he like went back to like Ron Weasley's accent. I said, I'd, okay, just stick with one buddy. Um, that being said, Jonathan Groff, uh, Ben Aldridge gave great performances as Eric and Andrew. Um, yes. I thought that their storyline as a family was really, really strong and they showed authentic connection with each other that really made you care for them and what was going to happen. Because let's be honest, like it's four people showing up to a cabin, tying a family up and then telling them, Hey, like you have to kill one of your, one of you, uh, in order to save the world. Like, you know, it's not going to end well. Like there is no way that this movie ends well. And that's how the tone of the movie follows throughout. So I got to commend Shyamalan for keeping that same tone throughout the whole movie of, um, like nothing good is going to come of this. Now, if you've read the book, spoiler alert here, at the end, Wen gets shot accidentally, accidentally and killed, and that doesn't count as the sacrifice to save the world. In the movie, I believe it's Eric, I just saw it, sacrifices himself, Jonathan Groff's character, uh, to get killed so that the apocalypse will stop. Um, so I personally wasn't pissed off by it. I saw it coming. I knew that that's what was going to happen because it got leaked that Shyamalan had changed the ending. Um, but I just, I, I, I don't know. It, it felt like the ending was flat for me, like a little, yeah. little too tied yeah. up. And Justin, you and I talked about it earlier. It's like, I didn't hate it. I didn't, you know, love it. But it, it, I just, I felt through most of the last half of the movie, like I, it was just like in the middle, you know? So you kind of have to, I mean, I right off the bat, after I walked out of the theater, I felt very similar to that. But you have to give Shyamalan credit uh, where credit is due, man. He swings for the fences mm-hmm. and sometimes... You know, it lands with a thud, you know, or sometimes it goes over the wall. And this was one that just kind of sat there and and did its thing. And in terms of suspense, man, the guy really, it's like half and half, 50-50. Sometimes he just knows how to convey suspense perfectly and it's it's done well. And this movie showcased some of that. In other movies, it, it just, you know, as flat as can be. Um but dude, the dude, you know, he self finances all of his movies. He stars in all of them. He stars. Well, it's a cam. It's like a Hitchcock <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. thing. You know, he always just has to have a thing in there. Um, though Hitchcock wasn't like a, a full character with lots of dialogue. He was just a cameo. Yeah. Um, but y- y- the movie has already made twenty million dollars on a twenty one or twenty one million dollars on a twenty million dollar budget around that. And it finally dethroned Avatar 2, The Way of Water. Yeah. The first movie. Now, granted, Avatar's in its like seventh <laughs> week or some right, shit. So, so it, it's not like that big of an achievement. But at the same time, you know, uh, M. Night himself tweeted, you know, thank you to all who made Knock at the Cabin, the number one film this week. And I am pinching myself that this is the seventh time this has happened to me. This is the fourth in a row with Universal Pictures. Much love to James Cameron. He's a hero to me. Glad to be in theaters with you. I mean, he he always just seems like a stand-up guy. Like his films or not, yeah. like he really does try. I, I, it's frustrating when you do see a movie of his that isn't good or like, you know, is complete shit. You're like, man, you know this guy's got it in him. You know what I mean? You can see it. Even in this movie, I totally agree with you that I didn't love this movie, but I also didn't hate it. I was like really like smack dab mm-hmm. in the middle on it. But overall, I enjoyed it. 
I mean, there's some shit in there that does not work at all. Mm -hmm. The ending I felt was so frustrating and anticlimactic, but the characters, and I'm going to disagree with you a little bit. I thought all of the characters in terms of the four horsemen were at least interesting enough. They all felt like real people. Well, maybe, maybe not all Bannon. Okay. (laughs) Uh, You know, it felt bad for Rupert Grint. Um, also, a.k.a. Redman. Because he's great in because, Servant. I don't know if you've seen that on Apple TV, but uh, man, he's great I haven't, but I, I just, you know, I, I'm not a huge Potter guy, mm-hmm. but a few years ago, Loy Sauce made me watch all through him. I got the 4K box set, um, and for the first time, watched through him. And I just love Ms. Ron Weasley, and I just, yeah. I, I think it was great to see him in a different kind of role here, where he was, like, threatening and stuff, but on uh, at the same time, he's in the movie for all of, fuck, what, 15 minutes, then he's gone? Yeah. Yeah, as soon as like I realized, it was, was that supposed was that supposed to be like a Janet Lee moment or something? Because it really didn't land that way. Yeah, I don't know. I I okay. So going back to characters, I will also contradict myself. I love as you always do in these things. I, know, I, always, do. <laughs> <laughs> I always you guys can see in real time the conflict in my head. Um, when I said that I liked Ben Eldridge and Jonathan Groff, I do, but I do have an issue with Jonathan Groff in a lot of his roles where I do not like the way he talks. Okay, this is a fucking nitpick. This is a nitpick. What are you talking but like, about? So Ben Aldridge, I think, gave the performance of his life as Andrew. He was great. He was emotional. He was devastating. He was angry. Like, he was all over the place in, in the perfect cues. Jonathan Groff, like, keeps the, the same voice like this. And I know he had a concussion, but, like, if you watch Mindhunter, he talks the same in Mindhunter. In fucking Frozen, he talks the same in Frozen. Like, he talks the same, and I don't Well, he's like it. the calm one. He's, like, the calm, collected one, you know? Yeah, but it's just, it's the way he talks. And it's, like, sometimes it comes across to me as inauthentic in his characters. So that's all. Okay. It came across here that way for me. I think it's and that's my opinion, and fine, you can't tell me I'm wrong. Fine, okay? fine. I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. I mean, I'm just going to say it didn't, his voice didn't bother me at all. And, in fact, I found comfort from him anytime he talked because he stayed in terms of, like, how elevated they got and anxious mm-hmm. and terrified by the situation. He stayed the most calm, well, he was concussed. at least in my viewpoint. was going on. I know. He also got his ass whooped real fucking quick in the beginning of the movie, and I was like, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he did. Dude, so but he, fucking I, Andrew going to town on O'Bannon, though. He's giving him the one-two. Well, we, we, well, we know why later on why he's capable of doing that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I will kick off, you know, the opening of the movie... I think is still the best work in the movie. I think it's the most effective. Um, you know, the movie opens and when is just catching grasshoppers. It's a beautifully shot sequence. There's a lot of very interesting camera angles used. And Leonard shows up, Dave Batista, making friends with her, very kind. It's a different side of Batista that we haven't really seen in any other movie where he's just calm and welcoming and warm Mm -hmm. yeah and disarming then the movie yeah exactly the movie goes right into like i didn't realize it was going to do this i thought it might start with you know them driving to the cabin we see the movie is woven through with flashbacks Mm -hmm. so the movie opens with the events them getting to the cabin and instantly trying to get in the cabin yeah and i think it was you know we've seen a lot of home invasion movies Mm mm-hmm a lot of very effective ones. I thought this stuff here was very effective and definitely the, the most frightening stuff in the movie. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, right off the bat where 
uh, Leonard is talking to Wen about, you know, hey, we're going to play this game uh, where you're going to pick a flower or the petals off the flower and ask questions. Like, very disarming. And then you find out later, like, Leonard was a teacher, so, like, that that's how it lends itself to his character. But then when it, it, it flips, man, like, five minutes into the movie, and he's like, I just want you to know that no matter what happens, like, you're still my friend. And, like, nothing is your fault. Like, you haven't done anything. This just has to happen. And it's like, I don't know, man, it was kind of chilling because then you see everybody start walking up with their weapons and, or I'm sorry, their tools. And like, you know that shit is just not going to go well. And yeah, and then Wen runs right up into the house, locks the door, gets Daddy Eric and Daddy Andrew, and then shit just starts going south. And and you know, I mean, even, even the characters know, Batista's going to fucking knock that door down if he has to. <laughs> and when Andrew looks out the door, he's like, that guy's big. He's like... <laughs> Guy's huge. Yeah. Of course he is. Yeah. I mean, he used to be fucking WWE champion, motherfucker. Of course yeah. he is. It, it is interesting. I mean, I understand he came out recently in the press when while doing um, interviews for this movie. Like, he'd like to do rom-coms. No one offers them to him. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting seeing him play a teacher. Like, a coach, sure. But, I mean, he's got tattoos everywhere. Yeah. Like, I'm pretty fucking covered, man, you know? He's got his hands, his arms, all the way around his neck and parts and stuff like that. But we are in 2023, motherfucker. Mm -hmm. Like, there's so many people that look like that. So, actually, you know, that made me super happy to see representation for, you know, tattooed people to that level, you know, and just showing it in a normal way. Not not that he's frightening because he has tattoos. I mean, he's frightening because he's a huge motherfucking guy. (laughs) He could crush your skull with a hand. Yeah, dude, he's intimidating. Like I said, he's just, it's commanding in his performance, but then it's, it's just, it's that juxtaposition of that and then him just sweet talking the entire time. There's one, there's one point where he yells, you know, but after, but other than that, he's just sweet, caring. I mean, and, and his, his yell is more of a concerned yell than like, I'm angry at you yell, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not. So this is where the issue lies for me. You know, once we get the four horsemen, if you will, Inside the house, you know, the two fathers are tied up in chairs. Yep. And Wen is just kind of chilling there because <laughs> they know that she's not going to go anywhere. The level of danger instantly plummets. And you quick re- quickly realize, rather, that no serious danger is going to occur to this family. That anything that happens is going to be solely based on their decision on, you know, what they're being told by these four people that came into their home. Mm. And, you know, there's that disbelief that kind of starts and, you know, it ends all the way at the end of the movie with these characters trying to understand what they're being told. Is it real? You know, is this something we actually need to believe or is it just complete bullshit? Like cult, you know, you guys are coming into our house and, trying to just murder us because we're gay. Yeah. You know, but I feel like while we're sitting there and watching them go through this process, it, it kind of gets to a point where I'm like, you're expecting, you're, you're knowing what to expect in every single scene. Yeah. And especially, you know, when, um, O'Bannon becomes the first sacrifice to bring on the first plague, right? Like after that happens, I think you realize like, okay, I was able to take a step back and be like, all right, well, nothing's really going to happen to this family unless they choose it to happen because, what, they're just going to end up keep killing themselves. Yeah, and to explain, yeah, I was going to say, to explain to the listeners, 
I mean, if you've seen the movie, that's why you're listening. But if you're listening and you don't care about, you know, watching the movie first, when they set off these plagues, they're sacrificing themselves. Mm -hmm. They're having to actually die. Yeah. For it to occur. So they, they have to kill one of their own, like they want the family to kill one of their own, which is kind of funny when you think about it. Like they're doing this to bring on these plagues, but they want the family to kill one of their own to stop everything. Does that make a lot of sense to you, Brady? No, nothing makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, and, and so, you know, like Justin said, you get these flashbacks to different periods of um, life of the family. So you you get a flashback to when Eric and Andrew are dating and having to introduce each other to um, Andrew's parents and it doesn't go well. And then, you know, when they find when for the first time or when they agree to be parents and they're going through their checklist of the things that they have wrong with each other. Um, Which is very interesting. I wish what, more couples should do that. Yeah. Like op- open and authentic. Let's lay it on the table, which they literally did. <laughs> He's like, These are the things the, I don't like you about you. life out of of the room in every situation he's like we said we're gonna temper it he's like okay out of most situations i'll be sure to remind jeremy that he does that every time he's on the show next time uh love you jeremy and but yeah i I thought those scenes were good and and then you get the scene of uh andrew being hit over the head with a bottle repeatedly having to get surgery in a bar after um a bigoted person comes up and asks them to be quiet because he's trying to drink with his friends listen here's the thing though we assume he's bigoted. I'm not saying that he's not. Mm-hmm. But he didn't say any slurs or anything. Yeah, you don't have to say a slur to be bigoted. Come on. You know what he uh, No, that's doing. true. I guess I know. I assume, I mean, based I on the, the motivations yeah. of what the film is doing, I understand that. But to me, that could have been me sitting there with with you. Mm-hmm. And we were having the same conversation. Well, similar conversation. Yeah. I mean, I didn't see him being close enough to hear the dialogue. But yes... It is considered a hate crime of sorts. Yeah, and then you get the backstory of Andrew then taking up kickboxing classes and and buying a handgun for protection, um, which, you know, surprise, surprise, he brings with him on the trip, um, which, you know, I guess we can speed up ahead to that a little bit, you know. As these apocalyptic things are happening, you know, a tsunami hits the coast and wipes out just you know, hordes of people along pretty the terrifying Northwest. shit, man. Uh, I gotta say, which I gotta say that was probably the scariest part of the movie. That tsunami, like that shit terrifies me. It was extremely well done. And that's one thing. Anytime I'm at the beach, dude, I shit you not. Every time I'm at the beach, I'm looking at that water and you know, anyone that knows anything about <laughs> what the future holds for our planet knows that eventually it's going to go down. Most beaches you know, in coastal fronts of the, the, the land is going to be covered in water yeah. within a certain period of time. Yeah. And then after and that, you have the planes begin crashing. They said something like 700 planes start just falling out of the sky. And the whole time, Andrew's just trying to rationalize it. And he's like, well, you know, it must have been a terrorist attack. Like, it must have been this. Like, you know, it's a pre-recorded show. They already knew this was going to happen before they came in the house. And you can see that Eric is starting to either believe it because he's concussed or he sees a vision or a specter. Um, but he starts slowly coming around to the idea that like maybe these people like are being truthful and this is really happening. And then you have to kind of look at it. Like one thing that I don't think the movie does quite as well as the book does is capture like they're isolated. So these things are happening and they can see it on TV, but like you're in an isolated cabin. You don't know what's going on. I mean, the cell phones don't work there. The landline's been cut, but like, 
you're so far away from all of this stuff that you have to take their word for it. Or you have to do what Andrew does and just say, no. or you have to do what Andrew yeah. does and said, no, I don't believe this. Yeah. And so I, I, I wish that they had been able to convey that a little better, but it, it's, it's not bad. It's just, again, a nitpicking thing. Um, but then, you know, you get down to, it's just Sabrina and Leonard left and Andrew and Eric are able to free themselves. Uh, Eric, which by the way, I, ha- <laughs> I have to say this right now. Okay. It's a movie. Yeah, yeah. Suspension of disbelief. Yes. It's a fucking movie. But when Wen gives Eric the knife to start cutting through the rope, it's like dead silent in that room. There's like no it. sound. Like, you, Dude, if I'm sitting in the chair that I'm sitting in now to record this podcast and there's someone standing 10 feet from me mm-hmm. with, no, with there's no TV on, no radio, you're going to hear the rope being cut by a knife. Oh, and his arm is going up and down the whole time. I'm just saying, what what else would they think he's doing? I think they know he's cutting a fucking rope. They probably just think he's fidgety, and like his daughter's there, so they're probably like he's trying to comfort. They but the sound, care. Brady. What I'm saying is the sound. The sound of a knife cutting through a rope is a very distinct sound. Oh, I know. And they've done all of these other things that they're so meticulous in trying to keep these people in this spot, and you know. In order to prevent the apocalypse, it just was a little bit too far fetched for me. I know that's hey, whatever. I, I I said you were nitpicking. This could be considered a nitpick. I just thought I just want to highlight you know, that it's in, with Jonathan Groff's character again. So yes, so that's two nitpicks on Jonathan Groff. Anyways, so okay, all right, or whatever. The, Maybe it was his performance that he was cutting the fucking rope too loud, Brady. So you don't like the way he talks, and I don't like the way he cuts a rope. Well, get him out Boom, of here! There get him out of here! Uh, and then Andrew. Runs out to the car where we know that he has his handgun in the safe. He gets out there, but Sabrina follows him and jabs him in, or hits him in the fucking leg with her pickaxe or whatever she has and just gashes his kneecap open. And then he throws dirt in her eyes, gets in the car, climbs back there. She's breaking through. It's the whole typical struggle of he can't open the safe. Yeah, but you know what? You know what I, I appreciated about that scene? You can see with her character and her performance that she really doesn't want to hurt him. Yeah. That she's trying her best, like, to prevent him from getting. Which, they don't know the guns in there. They don't know there's a gun, but she's trying to stop him from getting in the car. And you could see it on her face that she's like, "Fuck, I really don't want to hurt this guy." Yeah, and then, so she's like, so she breaks open the window and she starts sticking like the spear end of her her weapon into his side, and she's like, "Don't stop whatever you're doing." put down whatever's in the back and just like get out like she's asking him nicely almost she's, she's not like she's cussing him out like pushing it into him oh it's so gross so then he gets the gun finally loads it fires off a warning shot she goes running he goes back inside which is fucking hilarious the way she runs she ran like a, how a deer runs when they hear a gunshot oh yeah yeah for sure and then andrew gets back in points his gun at leonard here's the other thing i know that this is supposed to show like the human aspect of Andrew and Eric, which is another thing that I have wrong with their characters in this movie, is that they made them like this perfect couple, which in the book they're not. Um, and like the ideal couple in the book, again, they're not. But dude, this guy has been leading these people to torment your family, telling you that you're going to have to choose one of you to kill, and you still hesitate and say, hey, put the weapon down. No, if I go in there, I'm putting every single round in that handgun into the back of this mountain that is in front of well, me. Well, especially when you see, you know, the rage that Andrew has. You could see clearly throughout the movie, he has an anger problem. Mm-hmm. He shouts a lot of his lines. He's shouting at them, you know, screaming at them a lot. 
So it gets to the point where you're like, this guy's got a rage problem. He clearly has, he needs some anger management or some shit. Well, I mean, even Eric um, at one point says like, you have a temper when they're going over their, yeah, their issues. Yeah, He's exactly. like, you're not dangerous, but mm-hmm. you have a temper. So like, yeah. and everybody knows at this point. But then, the best fucking part, Sabrina comes in the back door and starts just sprinting. Gung-ho, like she's, a, like she's gonna try to fucking spear him Goldberg style and boom. Just blasts her. But then, uh, so then, Leonard is standing there and he is very calm still and Andrew is not calm and is like, you're gonna get in the bathroom, I'm gonna take my family, we're gonna go. He's like, but we're not like you so we're gonna just leave you here. So, again, puts him in the bathroom Locks the door, which is the, which is literally, I mean, here's the thing, and he easily tricks them because oh, there's yeah. no way that 300 pound Dave Batista is gonna no, go through that tiny that ass hole. window. No, no, yeah, he breaks the window and then they go in. They're like, okay, the window's broken. Did he get out? And everybody watching the movie will say, there's no way Batista's shoulders could have gotten through that fucking shit. Dude, even though he's nowhere near as big as he used to be back in WWE days. Or even before that, I mean, he, even as Drax, he he's a lar- he's still a big dude. He still lifts, but he lost so much size. Yeah. He's down to like a normal build for a guy that he still lifts. He's in great shape, but he's not b- the bodybuilder size he used to be. Yeah, exactly. So, but his shoulders are still fucking huge. Yeah, he's, not. he's still got massive lats, dude. He's not gonna get through that, dude, bro. His fucking head. If you notice all the close-ups of his head in this movie, <laughs> his head is a giant round fucking melon, <laughs> it's, it's, dude. That shit ain't going through no hole. No, no. So then Andrew looks at. The, he's he he's melon head, man. He is, uh, Andrew. Fires off around through the curtain into the bathtub. You don't hear anything move. You don't hear anybody scream, but you know somebody's there. And then Leonard pops out. A struggle ensues. Leonard gets the gun, gets them to go watch the TV that Eric then turns on. Um, you find more just awful shit is happening. And then Leonard says, all right, let's go out to the back porch. And then Leonard is the final sacrifice. Yeah. And it's, you know, the movies are... Well, he's not the final sacrifice, but he's not. He's the final sacrifice of the four horsemen. But the movies are. And I did appreciate in some respects that M. Night held back a little bit. I mean, Leonard is a character, someone that you kind of relate to. You can see his hesitation. You can see how he really doesn't want to be doing this. But he truly believes that what he's doing is the right thing to do. And when he's sitting there. And he, t- he takes his own life. It's disturbing, but in the same way, it's calming. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they didn't zoom in on his throat as he's cutting his throat. You see it slit. And it's done modestly with taste, if that makes any sense. No, 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 I'm no, the no. kind of guy that typically when I see someone get their throat cut in a movie, I want to see fucking Japanese anime style, like fucking, Just you know, that shit out. pouring out yeah, like a, yeah. yeah. No, I agree. Um, I thought that, it was another good way for him to really just show that he's a great actor and is destined to do even more great things in film. Um, and then, <laughs> and then you get the scene where the apocalypse is still happening. Andrew begins to realize that things are are very real. And no shit, this is actually happening. Yeah, and then I finally realized that Eric. They had their tender moment where Eric says. I'm seeing things very clearly. 
uh, you know, you're going, he's like, I have a vision. I want you to kill me while I have this great vision of our daughter grown up with you by her side. And she's met somebody who makes her just as happy as you made me. Which was a really sweet Dude, scene. I teared up, man. And there were people in the theater yeah. bawling. Like, I will say that about this movie. Like, there were some very, very sentimental moments. For sure. And I know that <laughs> M. Night isn't going to come in there and kill off when. Like, he's just not going to kill the kid, you know? Uh, but I... Do you think? Do you think if if they had done that in the the movie, like it is in the book, that it would have had more of an impact? Or do you think? I mean, I I assume that the GA would probably be really fucking pissed to see a cute little girl getting offed. I don't. So the book's ending is so ambiguous and so just kind of like a gut punch where you don't feel good with how it ends, and you can't have that kind of movie, you know. With so is it kind of like the ending of The Mist a little bit? Yeah, not quite as bad. Not quite as fucking just awful. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, I mean, at at the end of the book, you know, you have Eric and Andrew are still like, all right, well, what do we do? Like, our daughter's dead. The apocalypse is still happening. Like, do we still have to kill one of of us to end it? Like, why? And then you never get answered, like, why these things are happening. So I I don't know. I think this was a a more... uh, a better way to include general audience moviegoers. Like I, I think well, they need, I mean, also we discussed this pretty sure a little bit, it, the way that modern audiences expect to be spoon fed. I really don't think that anyone would have walked out of this movie had it be ambiguous and been satisfied by it. People like a final conclusion of their movie. Mm-hmm. Me on the other hand, I would have loved a somber, disturbing, ambiguous. You don't know what the fuck is going on ending where you're like, everything's left up in the air and like destruction is occurring or, or what have you like anything that's going to, you know, challenge me or yep. my thoughts. Yeah. And this, that's why I think the, the ending is, it has heart. There's a lot of emotion, but at the same time, it's so easy. It, you know what I mean? It's, it's just, you can see it coming a mile away. You're like, okay, one of them's going to go, they're going to realize this, this shit happened for real. Thank God it was Jonathan Groff. <sighs> God damn that motherfucker and how he cuts a rope so loud. Oh my God. Um, he was like, I just want you to kill me. <laughs> I was like, oh, I get it. You know, actually, I, I, I did like him in the movie, but you know, um, then the movie, it, it kind of just goes, stops to a halt and I'm not sure how I'm supposed to feel mm-hmm. with Andrew and when they get in the, a car, I think it's um, Leonard's truck mm-hmm. that they found, it's a ramp. which he conven- which he conveniently left the keys in. Um, which doesn't happen in the book, yeah. It doesn't? Well, I mean, like, they get the the car, but the keys aren't just left in there. They have to, like... <laughs> so, in the book, after Wen gets killed... In the book. In the book. <laughs> after Wen gets killed, Leonard just sits there, and he's, like, super upset. So he lets Eric and um, Andrew tie him up. But then Sabrina is still alive. So then Sabrina begins to tell... Eric and Andrew, how she and the other visitors were led by their visions and compulsions to find each other online, execute their plan, um, what kind of weapons they were supposed to have, and even when they didn't want to do it, like they all had to support each other to keep going with it, which you see through the movie. Um, Mm -hmm. But then she decides that after Wen dies that she wants to abandon her task. So then Sabrina kills Leonard and offers to lead Eric and Andrew to Redmond's car. I see. Mm -hmm. And then in the background, the TV is showing spontaneous plane crashes around and then 
They follow Sabrina into the forest, taking Wen's body. Sabrina recovers the car keys um, and a gun that Redman hit as well. Um, she tells them there's still time to prevent the apocalypse, and then she kills herself. And then Eric wants to kill himself, but then Andrew says, no, because it's not. No! He said, you're not going to kill yourself because I'm not going to sacrifice you to a god or whatever there is that didn't accept our daughter as a good sacrifice. And then they decide to embrace whatever happens together. And then it just ends. So you don't know what happens. So it's still, I think, a sweet, beautiful ending, but it's definitely more ambiguous than the modern moviegoer wants. Yeah, for sure. There's no way they would have walked out of that thing excited, no. I, you know, because the ending, you know, in its own way is a happy ending. We see Wen and Andrew, they drive down the road. You know, we see earlier in the movie that they, they have their favorite song that they sing to and dance in the car and it comes on the radio when, you know, after Andrew turns it off, she turns it back on, she turns it off, he turns it back on. <laughs> They're trying to find normalcy in the moment and they stop at this diner and you see all these families kind of embracing each other, just kind of, you know, hold out in there. And on the TV, of course, I mean, a lot of this story takes place with news clips that we're seeing on the TV, which, you know, everyone in these kinds of situations would be looking at, you know, the news to find out what's going on. They walk in the diner, they see what's on the news, they get back in the truck and just drive off and the movie ends. I mean, I... I mean, I get that. Like, it did feel very rushed and a little too neat. But it also goes back into when Andrew goes to get Wen from her treehouse that she's hiding in. She goes, did Daddy Eric save the world? Like, did he save everybody else? And then that's what's implied. So then, yes, there's this very somber moment where everybody's calling their loved ones in the diner. Or that waitress calls and says, yeah, I love you. Like, everything's going to be okay. It's over now. Like, they kind of share that moment with each other where they're like, okay, cool. Like, Eric did stop it. But, yeah, then it's like they just drive off. Like, that's how it ends. Like, come on. Yeah, I mean, in all reality, I don't even know how I would end it any other way. Um, But at the same time, leading up to it, I thought the movie was solid. I think, you know, one of the things I have to appreciate the most about Knock at the Cabin is how it treats its gay characters Mm -hmm. um, as actual characters, real people who show aggression, show their own spirituality with the world, you know, as opposed to just, you know, kind of basically caricatures that can't be touched, only admired, mm-hmm. you know, so people feel proud of acknowledging their existence in a way. It's just, they felt like real people and they didn't, a lot of times filmmakers these days put gay characters in movies to get a response. And this to me didn't feel like, no, granted I didn't read the book. Mm-hmm. I assume the characters, you said they're also the same in the book, right? Yeah. They're just, okay. I think, a little more human. Which I'll get, in, I'll get into with mine. Okay. But to me, it just felt like I was watching a family, a couple that had a little girl. Yeah. It didn't feel like anything tacked on or try hard or trying to convey any specific message to one side or the other. It was just a movie about this family. Yeah. You know, and I have to show deep appreciation for that from M. Night. And I also have to say that I think this is the first M. Night movie where there's no twist right? I, I could not believe it. Yeah. I could Every, not believe it. There was somebody it. in the theater that said that's not a real M. Night movie because there was no twist. And I was like, all right, dude, calm down. Dude, <laughs> M. Night I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure people are, there's, you know, some of the bigger publications are trying to claim there's a twist in this movie. And I was like, where the fuck is it? I didn't see a twist. 
I didn't. Where I, is there a twist in this movie? I don't think there was a twist. I think the twist was that you were expecting a twist and you didn't get one. Ooh, burn. Ooh. M. Night, look what you did there. Look what you did. People go in and expecting something and you didn't give it to them. Yeah. Boom. Wow. Look at you go. Uh, you, def- you definitely gave him that fried chicken from that air fryer, though, and that infomercial. <laughs> you <laughs> Dude, that chicken? I laughed. I laughed so fucking hard at that. And at the same time, I was like, I really want some fried chicken. Oh, I know. Chicken. I was like, man, I'm so fucking hungry right now. Uh, yeah, I know. I, I agree. I think that they really, you know, in the book especially, the characters of Eric and Andrew are really fleshed out and given a lot more personality um, and depth that I just, I don't think, it's it's hard with adaptations. You can't get everything into the movie. Um, and while I have shit on Jonathan Groff on this episode, uh, I do think that they had a really good connection with each other and that they were... They were fantastic together. Yeah. Perfect chemistry. And Yeah, exactly. They just had great chemistry that showed these two people very much in love and very much in love with their daughter, um, which made you, which I always complain about, you know, that you don't get enough feeling for the characters. Like, I think it was here. Like, you didn't want any of them to die. Yeah. I also didn't want Leonard to die, but that's just because Batista. That's just me. Well, also have to ask before we wrap things up here, what did you think of the character of Wen and the performance by Kristen Kui. Oh, dude, she was great. Yeah. Except, except when, except when her trick to distract Leonard is to scream about wanting her cartoons back on. I was so fucking annoyed. And maybe it's just because I don't like kids. But when, Aunt, when Eric says, like, gives her the head nod and she starts screaming so he can finish uncutting the rope. And she's just like, where, where, I want my cartoons back on. And Batista's like, you're going to count back from five with me, okay? <laughs> I was like, yeah, this dude's a teacher. He's like, five, Dude, remember start again. When, remember <laughs> to do that with me next time I get angry yeah, about something. Next time Justin and Jeremy start yelling about Scream on the podcast, I'm going to be like, all right, guys, count back from five. Scream five, scream four, scream three. <laughs> but no, I, I, I thought she was really, really great. And um, it... it her character has a lot to do in this movie, and I think that she handles it all extremely well, especially for her age, where she comes off as cute and innocent, but also has a lot of personality, where like in the moments where she's being defiant towards Leonard or towards the group, where she's just shaking her head or not talking. like I thought she did that really well. Yeah, this is like one of her first actual real role, mm-hmm. too. Um, but prior to this, I think she only did a music video or something. Yeah. So um, in that respect, brilliant. I mean, I was definitely taken with her performance in the movie. And, you know, a lot of people do like to shit on child performances in M. Night movies. You know, Signs, for example, Abigail Breslin, Rory Culkin. <laughs> a lot of people think they're dog shit in that movie. Shall I we think have a foot okay. race? But, you know, um, I thought she was fantastic in the movie, you know. Yeah. And I think... You know, overall, all the performances are solid. I didn't think anyone um, overdid it or underdid it. I would have liked to see, you know, Rupert Grant do more mm-hmm. in the movie. Yeah. Um, also, what the fuck was that accent again? I yeah. still don't know. Don't know. Um, but he did come off as threatening. He got his ass whooped by Andrew in the beginning, too. Um, oh, for sure. And he, When they first come in. You're right. He definitely comes across, you know, I think he was threatening kind of in that flip side of the coin of Andrew's rage, where Andrew, you never really felt like he was going to 
do something bad when he was angry, like Eric said. But then you had O'Bannon, who was constantly just like making comments or getting upset and agitated and swinging his weapon in threatening ways. So like, I don't know. I thought that was a cool kind of like mirror image of each other, like a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Yeah. Hyde kind of thing. For sure. But yeah, performances yeah, so. all around were fine. I just, I, the only thing that I would say about the, the group of intruders is that, you know, like Adrian really didn't get a lot of time. Um, and I just didn't like her character in the book or in the movie overall, which I don't think it was um, the actor's fault. It was just something. About I mean, she literally just works at like a Mexican restaurant or something, right? But she, yeah, has, she has a kid named Charlie. Yeah, she she has a little boy. You know, she seemed like a, a nice girl, you know, but she was probably the least interesting out of all the characters for sure. Yeah, so that's just my only qualm. Not not necessarily a, a performance issue, just a character issue. Yeah. For sure. All right, man. So we're down to it here and we might as well get to final thoughts and trash it or treasure it. So I'm going to throw it right back to you, Brady. Trash it or treasure God, these, it. These types of movies are always so hard to do this because we have to. It is for sure. It uh, is. I don't know. You know, we've said it all. Performances. Fantastic. Uh, I didn't like the changes they made to it. I didn't necessarily like the ending. I'm fine with there not being a twist. Um, I thought the score was also a little off. I don't know how you felt about that, but like, no, I liked the score. I really, I, actually, I, just, I felt like, yeah, the scene when they first enter the cabin, it was almost like a little too lighthearted for me. If that makes sense, like it was a little. No, yeah, it is very melodic, very emotional. Kinda. Yeah, so you know that kind of took me out of it. I think again, I just went into this nitpicking it. And maybe it was because I knew that they were making changes and I was trying to analyze every single change they made. Whatever the case, I didn't hate this movie. Um, I would watch it again, you know? Oh, okay, um, okay. Because I do think the performances were that solid. Uh, so for that, I'll treasure it, man. Like, I, I'm excited to see more horror out there, especially more adaptations of book horror. Uh, so... Great for Paul Tremblay, great for M. Night, great for the entire cast. Uh, yeah, definitely. Like, and, and go out and support horror. So like, even if you're on the fence about it, just go fucking see it. Even if you've been burned a million times by M. Night, I mean, Who hasn't? you never know which M. Night you're going to get when you show up, you know? Yeah. I mean, but people, there is a large, you know, part of the film-loving community that loves some of the movies, that people shit on all the time. I mean, we all love what we love. Film is subjective, so everyone's going to walk into a movie with their own expectations, and you're going to see it. And, you know, by doing this rating system on this show, you know, Epic Film Guys used to do one out of ten rating, which made it so much easier to rate movies. Um, you know, now it's a trash or treasure. Now it's a, you know, it's a two thumbs up or two thumbs down type of situation. That was my uh, clever way, if you will, of trying to mirror, you know, my legend Siskel and Ebert that really got me into film criticism at a young age. Yeah. But it's fucking hard. I mean, when you sometimes when you watch those old Siskel and Eberts, you're like, you could tell sometimes that they one of them liked the movie and they're like still giving it a thumbs down. I'm like, <laughs> how did you fucking do that? Like. So I feel like with all the things that I've said here, it would be unfair for me to trash this movie because even though I didn't think it was brilliant, a masterpiece, or even M. Night's best movie, I think it's his best movie in a while. I think he's showcasing his abilities in a good way, and I think performances are all around good. Opening the movie is very suspenseful. Uh, I think the middle dragged a little bit, you know. Um, but overall, the movie was fine. Mm -hmm. It was perfectly fine. 
Um, it, it, it served its purpose. It did what it was supposed to do and it did it okay. It didn't do it, you know, above and beyond, but it's, you know, an indication that M Knight's not done yet. He's going to keep self financing his movies. He's going to still keep swinging for the fences, what I, which I have to appreciate as a cinephile and a film critic. So I'm going to also treasure it. Am I going to buy this movie? Probably not. It didn't knock my socks off like Split did and make me want to rush back out to the theater to see it. But I was quite satisfied overall by the movie. So we both treasured it. There we go. Um, and now you can see how hard it is, ladies and gentlemen, for me to rate a movie when it's <laughs> Meh. good or bad. Yeah. Throw it in the trash or put it on my mantle. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that, there it is. And thank you so, so much for listening to this Brain Stew Fresh Fright review of M. Night Shyamalan's Knock at the Cabin. If you like what you're hearing, if you love what you're hearing, if you think we suck and B-Ratty needs to get a fucking haircut, leave us a review on iTunes. Yeah, I mean, I I just I, I said that on purpose just to get a reaction out of you, and that face was just pure gold, my friend. I was like, wait a minute, I just got a haircut, right? <laughs> Does it look bad? Um, yeah. You don't. You no longer have your fucking truck stop trucker. <laughs> my interstate hair. love song hair. James yeah. James Hetfield hair. All right. Also, you can leave us a review on Spotify. It's much easier. And if you're not already following us on social media, check us out at Epic Film Guys, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We're literally on every single podcatcher there is, every podcast platform. So we're worldwide, check us out. baby. We're worldwide, bitch. Prestige. But until worldwide. next time, I'm Justin. I'm be ready. Jeremy will be back next week. Mm-hmm. And as we always ask you, we like to ask you. We always ask we need you. To ask you. I need to ask you again. Keep it creepy. Brain stew.